Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? Oh, I'm doing pretty good. Turns out, Lisa and I have a duck. I always knew that my years of neglecting a portion of my yard work would pay dividends, and recently we discovered that behind an abandoned rake in our side yard, a duck has built her nest. Now, we've suspected this for a little while, and we talked about it on the most recent episode of What the Duck, a podcast most foul but with a W, because he's a duck, that's the full name of the show. That's the Howard the Duck monthly podcast that we do for our Patreon donors. But I can now confirm the propinquity of this duck and have some additional details. First off, we have named the duck. The duck's name is Goodington. She is named after a fictional college that Lisa and I invented when a terrible TV show we were watching had a character announce that she was going to be attending Wellingsley College. Secondly, based on no evidence whatsoever other than the fact that she has decided to live in our side yard, we have determined that Goodington is a good, good duck. And perhaps the most important item in this late-breaking duck news report is that Lisa announced the other day that she believes that Goodington is brooding. Now, this is exciting for a couple of reasons. Initially, I was excited because I thought that meant that Goodington would either start standing on rooftops and fighting crime, or possibly start dating the heroine from one of the Bronte sisters novels. But it turns out that brooding also has a second meaning, which is when a bird hatches eggs. That's right. We might soon be duckling adjacent. Now, I know neither myself nor Cory has always seen eye to eye with the avian kingdom. Phylum? Mm, nobody knows for sure. But it is my hope that one day these ducklings will act as a sort of envoy and can broker a peace between Cory, myself, and their avian brethren. And once we are united in peace and harmony, we can finally band together and once and for all defeat our hated mutual enemies, horses, raccoons, and those gross irises that are in my front yard. We're on the brink of a new golden age. All thanks to Goodington, the good, good duck who is now living behind a rake in my yard. Well, that concludes this podcast of duck news, but it looks like we got some extra time, so let's talk about a comic, I guess. Without any further ado... Let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme was sent in by Ed Bosnar. I do not want it, Sam I am. I do not want a slab of moist ham. I will not try it with an elf brandishing a gun. I will not try it with Steve Dayton's adopted son. I will not partake while schmoozing in a chat room. I will not partake while live streaming on Zoom. I will not touch it after a few bong hits. No, I'd much rather enjoy Hub Synopsis. Thanks, Ed. Defenders, number 74, August 1979. Fools Rush In. Written by Ed Hannigan. Drotted by Herb Trimpe. Inkted by Steve Mitchell. Lettered by Irv Watanabe. 
colored by George Russos, and edited by Al Milgram. Defensive lineup. Valkyrie. Nighthawk. Hellcat. Clea. The Incredible Hulk. Doctor Strange. And Namor, the Submariner. Hooray! Previously in The Defenders. The gang journeyed to a distant realm where they beat up Valkyrie's creepy-ass drama professor, Harrison Turk. Hooray! It had turned out that the problematic professor was also the hyper-violent campus vigilante lunatic with a K, and was also an extra-dimensional wizard king who had been split into a whole bunch of guys after a barbarian space werewolf took all his stuff. It was a whole thing. But now the multifaceted menace was safely locked in the dungeon of a friendly, many-eyed, hairy knuckle monster who talked like Yoda. So that was that. When our heroes arrived back on Earth, Nighthawk learned that his company, Richmond Enterprises, was under investigation for financial malfeasance. In an uncharacteristic display of responsibility, Kyle decided to give a shit about the charges and rushed off to meet with his lawyer. Bye, Kyle! Nor was the affluent avian aficionado the only non-team member with urgent business elsewhere. Doctor Strange announced that he had to develop a plan to thwart an insidious nameless evil that threatened the universe, so he flew off to do that. Bye, Steve. Hellcat played some records for Clea, Steve's girlfriend slash disciple, a not-at-all-creepy combination, who had joined the Defenders on their recent mission. Hulk apparently didn't care for Procol Harum because as soon as he heard the opening strains of Whiter Shade of Pale coming from Patsy's Hi-Fi, the Green Goliath stormed off to be by himself. By the Hulk! Well, Patsy, Clea, and Valkyrie enjoyed the novelty of a Long Island headquarters temporarily bereft of misogyny, across town on the ESU campus, Val's collegiate classmates Ledge and Dollar Bill were going through the vacant apartment once shared by Bill and the now-imprisoned Professor Turk. The intrusive undergrads were about to start leafing through the incarcerated academic's precious murder memory scrapbook when an uninvited masked visitor burst into the room wearing a spandex outfit and a big floppy hat. The ostentatiously attired intruder introduced himself as Fool Killer and stated his intention to kill Professor Turk because the extra-dimensional instructor was a fool. Gadzooks! To what distant land will Steve's strategizing sojourn take the concerned conjurer? How will Kyle's newfound sense of responsibility manifest itself next? And what will Valkyrie, Patsy, and Clea do now that they have the headquarters to themselves? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so Atlantis, he quits the Defenders, and mostly talks shit about Steve. Hooray! Legend Dollar Bill are taken aback by Fool Killer's bombastic entrance. The self-proclaimed lethal enforcer of prudence explains to his understandably flummoxed audience what his whole deal is. Basically, he aspires to do what his name would indicate kill fools. Unfortunately, he hasn't found any yet. Really? I gotta say, I did not expect that to be the part of his mission statement that would prove difficult. Turns out, Fool Killer is a dude named Greg, who found the costume and disintegration ray gun used by a different guy who called himself Fool Killer. Ever since he found him, Greg's been looking for someone worthy of murdering so that he can live up to the legacy codename he's decided to adopt. He was gonna kill a mugger, but then he saw that the mugger was using the money to buy drugs, so he figured he'd kill the drug dealer. But then, he saw the drug dealer paying protection money to a racist gangster, so he decided that the racist gangster was the fool that he was gonna kill. Fair enough. 
But then the gangster cried and expressed a self-loathing that Foolkiller reckoned was poetic for some reason, which I guess made him less of a fool, so Greg decided to just go home. Then he somehow heard about this drama professor who dressed up in a funny outfit and murdered people for what he considered transgressive behavior. Greg reckoned that was the most foolish thing he had ever heard of. So he put on his fancy outfit and headed over to Turk's apartment so that he could murder the professor for his transgressive behavior. Yeah. When D.B. and Ledge inform Foolkiller that his intended victim is incarcerated in a far-off dungeon, he gets pissed off and smashes all the shitty pop art in the apartment. No! Corey and I needed that shitty pop art to decorate the walls of our fictional fast-casual restaurant-slash-nightclub shenanigans! Damn it, Greg! Your disregard of human life was one thing, but jeopardizing a fictitious business venture? Now you've gone too far. Bill suggests that Foolkiller meet up with the Defenders and ask to join up, figuring that our titular non-team will quickly identify Greg as a menace and make short work of the aspirational serial killer. Greg agrees to go along with this plan, and the three of them head to the train station to begin their trek to rural Long Island. Unaware of the trio of troublemakers headed their way, Clea regales Patsy and Valkyrie with a funny story about Doctor Strange and a traveling salesman. We come in at the very end of the story, so it's not clear whether an automatic milking machine was involved, but I like to think so. The three crime fighters are laughing about what a schmuck Steve is when Kyle pulls up. He seems pretty down in the dumps. The bummed-out billionaire-to-well-bird enthusiast explains that he's in a lot of trouble with the government for mismanaging his finances, and, to keep the defenders from being involved in the scandal, he's going to tender his resignation. The gang is still free to use the headquarters, but he's going to go back to Manhattan to prepare his legal defense. What? No Kyle? But with him gone, who will be there to creepily watch Val and Patsy sleep? Or violently attack strangers while complaining about the fact that no one respects him? Or spend one and a half billion dollars on an adamantium chair that nobody wants? While Kyle sulks back to the city, Hulk is doing some sulking of his own around the stables. The Jade Giant is trying to figure out whether friendship's worth all the hassle when he spots a couple of kids trying to steal a horse. He threatens to smash the kids if they don't scram. Being reasonable horse thieves, the children decide to scram. Good choice. In the course of their terrified running away, the would-be equine appropriators run into Hellcat. After giving the frightened children a brief lecture about the evils of horse rustling, Patsy calls out to Hulk, presumably so that she can share the good news about Kyle's resignation. But the brooding behemoth isn't done weighing the relative merits of friendship and solitude, so he leaps away to find someplace quiet to give the matter some further thought. And just to be clear, when I called Hulk a brooding behemoth, I meant that he was sullen and darkly menacing, not that he might be about to hatch some Hulklings. Although, Hulk, if you're interested in hatching some Hulklings, I'd be happy to put out another old rake in the side yard for you. Just try not to scare Goodington. Meanwhile, in Atlantis, Doctor Strange is visiting with Namor. Hooray! The abdominally adroit Atlantean prince is like, Let me guess, you need my help to fight a powerful foe that threatens the universe. Steve's like, Um, maybe. See, there's this unmentionable evil, and it, well, yeah, it's threatening the universe. Namor is like, Unmentionable, you say? The only time I've heard that word that wasn't old people talking about underpants 
It was an ancient Atlantean text describing a super-duper evil thing. But I always thought it was just a made-up old folktale, like elves and fairies, which exist here and I've fought, or, or leprechauns, which, yes, also exist in the Marvel Universe, or ogres and tro- You know what, I'd better think this over. I'll give you my answer next issue. Imperious Rex! On a train bound for rural Long Island, Dollar Bill and Ledge make awkward small talk with their murderously monikered new acquaintance. I guess Greg decided to bring a couple of buddies along with him on his Defender's fact-finding mission, because seated next to him are Man-Thing mainstay and Sad Sack Steve Gerber stand-in Richard Rory, and freelance photographer from the Omega the Unknown supporting cast, Amber Grant. Richard and Amber don't seem too stoked about Greg's deadly ambitions, but he's like, Come on, guys. Stop worrying. What's not to like? I'm gonna kill fools. It'll be awesome. We don't really get to see how persuasive this argument might have been, because it's interrupted when the train slams on its brakes to avoid hitting a certain Emerald Avenger who has decided that the train tracks are the perfect place to sit while quietly enjoying a moment of self-reflection. Damn it, the Hulk! Fool Killer is unaware of the reasoning behind the sudden disruption of travel, and threatens to kill the train conductor for foolishly stopping the vehicle. Seriously, Greg? The violent racist gangster doesn't tickle your trigger finger, but a slightly longer commute has you on the verge of murdering an engineer? Get it together, Greg. Fortunately, Dollar Bill talks Greg down from the murder ledge. They head over to the window and witness the Hulk throwing a big old tantrum. The irascible behemoth starts smashing the shit out of trains, railroad tracks, nearby train stations, and anything else he can get his gamma-irradiated hands on. A crowd of commuters gathers around to watch the rampage, apparently delighted by the carnage because they are displeased with the quality of service the railway generally provides. Rather than be placated by the applause of the onlookers, Hulk is annoyed at their irrational behavior and leaps off once again in an attempt to be alone. A few hours later, Fool Killer and his quartet of companions arrive at Defenders HQ. Dollar Bill introduces Greg and is like, Hey guys, I totally think you should let this guy, whose name clearly states his lethal intentions, join the Defenders. I definitely don't think you should try to fight him or take him to jail. Wink, wink. Oh, did I just say wink, wink out loud? I guess I must have something in my eye. Patsy is like, um, okay. Val is like, well, I guess Kyle just left and he probably isn't any worse than him. It's honestly a little unclear whether they're humoring Fool Killer or seriously considering him for membership. Greg is like, hey Valkyrie, I hear you have a magic sword. Mind telling me about it? Val's like, sure, its name is Dragonfang and I keep it razor sharp, but I only use the flat part of it when I hit bad guys. Fool Killer replies, That sounds really silly. Or should I say, foolish. Get it? Fool? Like in my name, Fool Killer? Which would imply that I would react to such behavior in a very specific way? Yeah, anyway, I'm gonna kill the Defenders, which has always been my plan, but that flat of the sword thing really confirmed that decision for me. To be continued. Man, why couldn't this fool killer guy show up when Jack Norris was still hanging around the Defenders? And joining us once again via the magic of telephonic communication is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how's it going? It's going okay. How are you? 
I'm doing pretty good. I, uh, been making some burritos lately. Ooh, nice. Yeah, I used the technique that you recommended where to get the crunchy cheese bits inside, you caramelize the cheese in a pan and then put the tortilla down on top of it. Sweet. It ain't been coming out real nice. Yeah, I was happy to learn that myself. Cool. How about you? Oh, pretty good. Started a new job on Friday, so I'm thankful for that in the midst of all of the strangeness that's going on in the world. Yeah. Congratulations, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, thank you. Well, you want to talk about a comic book? Sure. What do you think about this comic book, Corey? I had a good time with it. I did, too. It was refreshing and felt like kind of a return to form to the manageable weirdness that the Defenders can be, you know? It felt like it was rooted in things that made sense, but with some weird tweaks to it, and I I enjoyed it. I did, too. One of my big takeaways from it is, why did they even let Dollar Bill come come around? I mean, that guy is just a bunch of trouble. Well, you see when he shows up, Val isn't stoked to see him, and is just like, Dollar Bill, why are you interrupting us? And I think they're all pretty much at the end of the rope with him, but he knows their address, so they can't stop him from taking the train there. I mean, I guess except for the Hulk. (laughs) Yeah, I think the Hulk put an end to that. I'm just saying, if, you know, they've got this proto version of a blink or a ring or one of those sort of video doorbells, and he shows up with Ledge and this other guy dressed in an interesting costume, and they're just like, oh yeah, come on in. Yeah. I think they don't have anything. I think he just opened the door and came in. So I think their version of a security system would be to have Kyle change the handmade sign that he posted above the door to just say, go away, dollar bill. Which I don't think would be a bad idea, frankly. Yeah, not that he'd acknowledge it, but, you know, the spirit of it, I admire. What did you think about the art this issue? I thought it was pretty good. Looks like um, Patsy changed her her hairdo. Yeah, it seems like all of the ladies kind of got different hairdos. Patsy did, and then uh, Clea did as well. They're both rocking kind of more feathered, late 70s, early 80s, Farrah Fawcett-inspired haircuts. And it's not a bad look for them. Yeah. The copy that I had was not in great condition, so... It's it's a little tricky to judge some of the panels. I did find that the scene where there's a, a couple teen or tween, or I can't tell what age they're supposed to be, hooligans who try and steal one of Kyle's horses as a joke. Mm-hmm. But they look like they're drawn as adults on tiny bodies. <laughs> or like adult heads on little bodies. Yeah, the scale of them was a little bit weird, and I think that's something you come up against in comic books a fair amount, is drawing children or teenagers is pretty tricky if you're just used to drawing adults. Like, do I just uh, make them the same but smaller? Or, I already drew these faces when they said it was, like, just hooligans, and then I read further, and I guess they're kids, so I guess just make their bodies smaller but keep their heads the same. Yeah, I think that's something that comes up a lot. Yep. Another thing about the art I observed is 
a lot of the the panels switched angles and positions of for the for the viewer in a way that was really noticeable in how different they were and i found it pretty interesting there's a lot of angles where it's kind of shot from the back like say on page 14 it starts with just kind of a landscape view of of hulk trucking along walking through the countryside with fluffy pink clouds behind him and then the next panel we're looking you know kind of from behind him over his shoulders as he looks down the hill at the horse riding academy Mm -hmm. yeah it's switching those perspectives like that similar to how you might see on a you know a, a film yeah it's it's something that i think works really well and is something that i think you kind of need to do if you have scenes that go a long time without fight scenes and With the exception of the Hulk fighting a train, there really isn't much of a fight scene in this issue. So you have to kind of break up the action a little bit in a way that keeps things visually interesting. And I think they did a good job with that. The penciler for the issue is the same one we've had for a while, Herb Trimpe. And I think he continues to do a good job. We've got a different inker. It is Steve Mitchell at this point. Steve Mitchell was an artist who worked for both DC and Marvel for a while primarily as an inker, and then later transitioned into writing for film and television. He wrote some episodes of Transformers and G.I. Joe and Gem. But I think most interestingly, also co-wrote the film Chopping Mall. Really? Yeah. Have you ever seen that one? No, I'm guessing it's a, a slasher film of some sort. Sort of. It's a horror movie that is set in a mall. It is very violent. It is killer robots out of control in an automated mall. It has a pretty significant cult following. And it's a fairly interesting movie, directed by the same guy that directed The Return of Swamp Thing, which was really, really bad, but also kind of fun to watch. Cool. Other than that, yeah, I think the art is really good. There are some kind of different looks for some of them. We mentioned the different looking haircuts. The close-ups of Kyle, he looks kind of like the actor James Coburn in a way that I had never seen him looking before, which was kind of interesting for me. Yeah, it's weird to see him drawn looking extremely concerned. Yeah, just very serious and kind of tight-lipped. What did you think of Fool Killer? Oh, man. What a fool. <laughs> the irony. Ugh. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think it's going to be amusing. I just, I hope it doesn't get dragged on for too long. I feel like his shtick is going to wear off, like the charm of it is going to wear off pretty quick. Maybe, but it sure hasn't for me yet. I really like the idea of a character who is a lethal vigilante as part of a kind of performance art project. I think it's really weird and kind of fun and makes some sense and kind of makes sense that he's dressed the way that he is. And I don't know. This is the second character that's a fool killer that we've seen. The first one first showed up in Man-Thing and was chasing the kind of Steve Gerber stand-in that was in that issue, a guy named Richard Rory, who we see in this issue again, too. He was a religious zealot, and that was the impetus behind him wanting to kill people that he considered fools so that they would burn in hell unless they repented. Then Richard Rory went to jail, probably for vagrancy or something, I forget the exact details, but while he was there, 
he shared a cell with the guy who's this fool killer who takes it in a different direction and, like I said, views it as kind of a almost art project. I think he is an art student and just wants people to live in a more poetic manner. And the way he uses the word poetry in it, I think is, it's like he's rating everything as to whether it is poetry or not poetry with, you know, potentially deadly results of that judgment. Mm -hmm. I, I think one of the things that's both amusing and frustrating for me about the character is the way that his propensity towards violence being set off by potentially really tiny things is you know central to how he is where for example when the train stops suddenly he's like this railroad is being run by fools i'm gonna kill them and they're like nope how about not and he's like oh yeah okay that's that's right that's probably not a great way to handle things well that's the thing at this point i don't think he has actually killed any fools yet which on the one hand, I mean, that's good. Obviously, you want less murder. But on the other hand, I feel like if you're gonna call yourself fool killer, you need to kill at least a fool. Like, I've been this disappointed since we went to that strip mall. <laughs> yeah, good point. He's not living up to his name. And also, like you said, the scale on which he is judging people it makes sense that they are trying to maybe make fun of an artistic temperament, but it doesn't really make sense, which I guess the fact that it doesn't make sense kind of makes sense for the character, that he would equate these things because he clearly has some kind of issues with mental instability. I'm not sure exactly what they are. I'm not licensed to diagnose fictional characters, but he's got something going on. But yeah, the fact that he's at one point like, well, okay, you're a gangster who's racist and is running a protection racket. You're responsible for a lot of death and harm of people. I'm going to kill you because you're a fool. And the guy's like, yeah, good call. I am a fucking fool. And he's like, well, that's a fucking poem. Now I'm not killing you. The fact that you feel bad means that you're a poet. So I'm out. But then also is like... You hit people with the flat of your sword? That's foolish. Wait a minute. Fool. Foolish. Fool killer. I'm fool killer. I should kill you. It's more like he's doing word association than having actual judgment of people. Yep. I agree. And I guess that is supposed to illustrate the goofiness of the character. But I did, at the end, find myself just like being like, oh, come on. <laughs> really? Yeah. It's one of those where, like, when I hear about, like, the son of Sam killer and stuff, there's part of me that responds to that by thinking, by saying, like, well, if you thought Satan was talking to you through your dog and telling you to kill people, why would you kill people? Clearly, Satan doesn't have your best interest at heart. But by the time Satan is talking to you through your dog, you're not following logic in a way that I recognize logic anyway. So I can't really apply that to that situation, you know? Mm -hmm. Yep. One of my other questions that, that came up in this story was, like, I don't know if Hannigan spent a lot of time on commuter trains, but he dedicates a good four or five pages to <laughs> bashing the Long Island commuter train. 
Yeah, both verbally and in the Hulk's case, physically. He really hates the, that thing, and apparently the commuters do as well, to a point that is incredibly illogical. I, one of my notes does just say, stupid idiot commuters. Like, the fact that they all applaud when the Hulk smashes their train because the train is often late. It's like, well, do you think no train will be faster than a smashed train? Yeah, they're, like, in the middle of nowhere. They're out by Kyle's Riding Academy, clearly between point A and point B. How are they going to get home? What are they so happy about? Maybe they're trying to humor the Hulk. I'm I'm honestly not sure, but it, it was just like, I get that they hate this institution, but... They're really cutting off their noses to spite their faces at this point. And Hulk doesn't care for that either. No. He's just like, he's like, oh my goodness, these people are such goofs. I'm out of here. And just takes <laughs> off. I wish he had actually said that. Oh my goodness, these people are such goofs. I was paraphrasing. Speaking of goofs that the Hulk encountered, those kids, I guess, I thought that they were teenagers, but it is very ambiguous how old they are that are horse thieves. Although, it's tough to tell if they were just horse-stealing as a funny prank. Either way, do Kyle's neighbors not know or not remember that the Defenders live there? Because that was national news. Also, it seems like usually everybody recognizes the Hulk when he pops out. And this kid's response is, yeah, monster! Yeah, the Hulk's pretty famous, isn't he? Yes. It would seem like everyone would know who he was. Maybe these kids just don't have a TV. Maybe their parents are hippies. Oh. And they're kind of free-range children who are like, I don't know, raised in a commune-like situation, like maybe in Barrington. They're all hopped up on, on high-sugar carob <laughs> chocolate substitute. Yeah, and don't have any parental supervision or access to television. See, now I'm starting to feel bad for these kids. Well, having grown up that way, I never stole a horse to put in <laughs> Mrs. Cradshaw's garden. Although, it sounds like a pretty good prank. It does seem like a pretty good prank to put a horse in a garden. Now, <laughs> was your lack of horse thievery due to uh, ethics or a general recognition of consequences, which I don't mean to cast aspersions, but it didn't seem like that was necessarily your strong point at that age, or just an aversion to horses. Uh, C. Choice <laughs> C. A healthy respect for large, scary animals. The nearest horse to me was, was walking distance at a farm down the road, and uh, its name was Avalanche, because it, Whoa. he had a, a bad attitude. And it was a very large horse. Would you say Avalanche's attitude was worse than Misty, the pony who tried to kill you? I don't think Misty tried to kill me. She just was annoyed at the person like trying to ride around on her. Okay, that's fair. So I, I would say Avalanche, yeah, was, was actually like he would try and hurt you. <laughs> Whereas <laughs> Misty was just like, oh, I'm just going to make this kid fall off and eat some grass. Wait, she tried to make you eat grass? No, she... This, I didn't realize the horse bullied you. It was just one time where I was... <laughs> I was uh, trying to ride the pony around, and, um, the you know, I felt bad, like, yanking on the reins because of the thing with the, the bit, you know? Yeah. And so I didn't, 
And uh, so she was just like, oh, okay, I'm totally going to eat this grass. And then, like, leaned her neck down to the degree that I just fell off. Oh. And then she just sort of, like, nuzzled me out of the way and then ate the grass. And I was like, I am not getting back on that thing. That is fair. I thought you were saying that Misty made you eat grass. Like, shoved your head into the grass with a hoof. Oh, man. No. Thank goodness. That's probably for the best. Avalanche would have done that. But... <laughs> I wasn't going near that thing. Good call. Thanks. I was stoked to see Namor back in this issue. I bet you were. Yeah, I I was happy to see him too. He seems like he's a lot chiller when he's in Atlantis than he does the rest of the time. That's probably more comfortable than being topside. Yeah, I mean, he seemed very reasonable and kind of scholarly and significantly less arrogant. Like, not to the point of being self-effacing or anything like that, because that's very much out of his character. But the fact that when Steve tries to address him by his proper title, he's just like, Oh no, you don't need to do that. I'm just plain folks. I'm like, wait, wait, that's, no. You, you love being addressed by your full royal title. Yeah, I, I didn't feel like he was saying it to be self-effacing or to say, I'm, I'm just folks. I think that was his way of basically saying, hey, Steve, I know you're here to ask me for something, so just get to the point, dude. He does bring up the fact that Steve is always asking him for favors and always framing it in the context of, it could mean the end of both of our worlds. He does. <laughs> Steve's like, to all realms, in fact. <laughs> Namor says, that's what you always say. Yeah, and Steve's response is, nevertheless. But I do like the idea of Namor just being like, yeah, yeah, Steve, remember that time in the Sanctum when the milk had gone bad and you said that that was a threat to all realms? He's like, well, it was. Yep. But yeah, Namor is unusually chilled out. It was kind of refreshing, actually. Yeah, I enjoyed seeing that, and I think it kind of makes sense that, yeah, in his home territory, he'd be a little chiller, a little bit more accepting, and also he hasn't seen Steve in a while, so maybe Steve is a little bit less on his nerves. I don't know. I feel like as soon as Steve shows up and says, greetings, oh, prince, he's just like, oh, <laughs> don't call me that. And what do you fucking want? Pretty much, yeah. One person who is not currently being annoyed by Steve is Clea, and there is a really fun gab session that she and Patsy and Valkyrie are all having, where they're sitting around the living room talking about what a silly dipshit Steve is, and I thought that was really fun. It was a lot of fun, although I can't, for the life of me, think of a good example of what it was that caused him to get so embarrassed, because they're, they're joking, they're all cracking up because... A, a salesperson came and mm -hmm. Steve got embarrassed. Yeah, I was wondering about that too. If maybe, maybe it was like, I don't know, penis enhancement pills or something like that. I, yeah, I don't know. Or I, I was thinking like, what, what would be most embarrassing to him? And I think that would be, you know, exposed for pretending he knows a lot about something that he doesn't know a lot about. Yeah. So salesman comes to the door trying to sell, say, a vacuum cleaner. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes, I recognize what this is. This is a 
Fligarvian swamp creature. Oh, I have three of them in my study. They're very, very dangerous. I'll buy two of them. And the vacuum cleaner salesman is like, no, this is for cleaning up your rug. Maybe it's somebody who is selling brassiers. Oh, yeah, I can see Steve blushing a lot during that. Well, or just being like, oh, these must be the things that you put on your head when you go to sleep to protect your hair. Oh, yes, Dracula hats. Yes, I've seen that Dracula has those buns on his head. He probably needs to keep them in place. Mm -hmm. And then it's just mortified when uh, Clay is like, actually, Steve. I mean, I think both of those are strong possibilities. It is also possible that either Clea or Wong let the salesman into the sanctum during Steve's private time, and the uh, salesman saw the flame ghosts. <laughs> I think that's a possibility. But either way, I really just like the idea of the girls hanging out and shooting the shit and talking about what a doofus Steve can be. And I think this is the kind of thing that Clea really needs. And it was nice to see that happening. Yeah, I agree. I was a little bit disappointed that Namor didn't get to meet Fool Killer. I mean, I think they wouldn't have ultimately gotten along, but I think that initially Namor would have been at least kind of intrigued by, so you're an artist with a flair for the dramatic, and you hate fools and want to kill them. I like the cut of this guy's jib. Yeah, that's a good point. I could, I could see Namor appreciating that. He does not suffer fools. No, and he likes to call people fools, and uh, they might make a pretty good team in that regard. You know, you could have them be fool killer and fool identifier. They could maybe make a nice match. Although, yes, I think Namor would ultimately, and probably not even after very long, get pretty sick of Greg's shit. One thing fool killer did say at the very beginning cracked me up, where he referred to Ledge and Dollar Bill as apprentice fools. (laughs) Which I I can't figure out if that means that they're so bad that they didn't even make the full grade or they're okay enough that they haven't like graduated to full foolhardiness. Yeah, it is almost like a a logic puzzle like, oh, this guy came in second place in the loser competition. Mm -hmm. Like, wait, is that better or worse than if he had came in first place? Either way, I think applicable certainly to Dollar Bill, if not Ledge. I'm also a little bit disappointed that Fool Killer smashed all of Professor Turk's art that we were going to purchase secondhand for the Walls of Sananigans. Yeah, I'm torn because that food tree is ugly. It's so ugly. (laughs) It's so ugly that when Fool Killer kicks it over, it makes the noise splash. (laughs) Yeah, I don't even want to know. It's a wet food tree? So... In addition to the slices of pie and hamburgers growing on the tree, maybe there were just some slabs of moist ham. (laughs) There is a hamburger flying through the air when he (laughs) kicks it, so it's probably a a wet hamburger. Splash. I have difficulty disagreeing with his analysis of, uh, of Professor Turk as the biggest fool that he could find, though. Yeah, that's fair. And I gotta say, I did kind of enjoy his journey of, all right, I'm going to kill this guy because he's a fool. 
Oh, but this guy's a bigger fool. Oh, and that guy's an even bigger fool. Oh, and that guy's the biggest fool of... Oh, he feels bad, damn it. Okay, start over, start over. The Defenders. Let's see. There's a lady named Valkyrie on that team who hits bad guys with the flat of her sword instead of the sharp part, but she still carries a sword. Diagnosis? Foolish. All right, here we go. Yeah, no, he's he's definitely mercurial in his ministrations. I mean, we've complained about Valkyrie for that thing, too. And I don't think he's wrong that that is a foolish thing to do. But, I mean, not a murderable offense. Yeah, you, you should not murder a hero because they choose non-lethal ways of hitting people. I mean, she basically says the sword's too powerful. If I hit somebody with a sharp edge, they'll be dead. And that's not what I want to do. Yeah, I mean, I would again say maybe just don't use the sword then. But it's especially odd because he had previously been about to kill Lunatic for using lethal force when he fights people that were breaking the law. Yeah, no, he's a, a ball of contradiction. Mm -hmm. That guy is like longitude. He is all over the map. I was also a little bit confused about his appearance on the cover where the color scheme for his outfit is completely different than the interior bright red yeah i wasn't sure if maybe he was supposed to be glowing or something or they just thought that was too much blue for a cover it was an odd choice but it looks pretty good on the cover i actually think it looks good on the interior too i think it's a pretty fun costume that is a heck of a hat it really is did you notice on page six how tiny mr trotio's foot is I just noticed that as I was scrolling through and I was like, maybe that's why he he let him live. Because he he'll just suffer having one very, very tiny foot. Oh, his foot is either very tiny or that leg is very long. <laughs> that is a weird picture. I wonder if that villain, Mr. Trotio, the fact that he lived to fight another day, if he then went on to become a Rob Liefeld hero in the 90s. And that's why he has such tiny little feet. Did you get a chance to read the letters column? I did not. So I'm not going to get into the actual letters in it, but there is a note of things to come that makes me nervous. In Defender's Dialogue, there is a box at the top of the letters column that says, The Defenders has never been a stranger to controversy, as most Marvelites are aware. Rather, it is a decided tone of offbeatness that gained the book its most distinct character. In simpler words, the Defenders has a rep that is, shall we say, weird. This quality has served well over the years, especially in light of the fact that most of Marvel's other team books are pretty serious fare for the most part. The very concept of a non-team with no permanent membership has lent itself to a looser, lighter type of storytelling. Most of you seem to enjoy this treatment, but of late, more and more mail has come in suggesting that we may have Shudder gone too far. And they go on to say that, Therefore, it has been decided that after the Stephen Grant Omega outing, which is upcoming, we will be trying a more traditional, straighter-style storyline. 
Not that the Defenders will become the peak friends of Marvel comic books. It will still be slightly strange, and the membership will be shifting around as much as ever, and the stories will continue to bear the unique Defenders brand. But after the Fool Killer, a little sobriety might be welcomed by one and all. And remember, we don't know if we're doing the right thing unless you tell us, so write. Wow. I mean... I get there being a counteraction to the lunatic storyline, but I don't think too goofy or too weird was necessarily the problem with it. I would like some more coherent storylines, but I don't know. That makes me nervous. Yeah, me too. I feel like you can be weird and coherent at the same time. And that is what I would like them to be. I don't know. I mean, we'll see what the execution of that is when it actually comes about, but uh, I think at this time, Jim Shooter was editor-in-chief of Marvel and was trying to crack the whip a little bit more, especially after Steve Gerber had left. I know that Jim Shooter had kind of a axe to grind with Steve Gerber and that that came up a good deal later when Shooter wrote Secret Wars number two. He actually had a character who was a stand-in for Gerber, who he abused quite a bit in the storyline. So I don't know to what extent this is just in reaction to him thinking things had gotten a little bit out of control, but I don't, I don't know. I guess we'll see where it goes. Indeed. Yeah, I hope they don't go too far in the direction of sobriety. No, although honestly, in some ways, it might make our jobs a little bit easier. It's easier to goof on things that are trying to be serious than it is to goof on things that are intentionally goofy. So who knows? We shall see. Indeed. So there's one exchange that the defenders had that kind of threw me for a loop. It's when Hellcat is talking to Valkyrie and says something along the lines of, well, now that Kyle's gone, and we can't find the Hulk, I guess that makes you team leader. So, is the Hulk ahead of Valkyrie in succession to lead the team? Because that is berserk. I can't conceive of why she would have said that. Like, even if it was that they're in a democracy and his vote counts, it still doesn't explain the way that that sentence is constructed. It does make it sound like <laughs> there's a succession order. Which is like, well, we'd have to try all the boys first. Right. I mean, obviously. Uh -huh. And then if there are no men that can lead the team, uh, I guess you have seniority. That absolutely made me just be like, wait, what? Does the Hulk have like, was he made technical vice president of the team for some reason? Yeah, that makes How does no this sense. shit work? It makes no sense. And also... It's one of the first times that we see more overt acknowledgement from more people than just Kyle that Kyle is in charge, which was a little a little jarring. Yeah, it was a little bit off. I will say, though, I would not be opposed to reading a book in which Hulk was a team leader, because I think that would be really funny. Mm -hmm. Everybody's following Hulk's orders of what, about what they have to do next. It's like, well... He says we should smash this uh, mailbox, so I guess that's what we're doing today. Yeah, no, he'd be like an anti-leader. I feel like he would just be like, everybody, you guys all go over there <laughs> and don't bother me. How's that? <laughs> what do stupid humans think now? <laughs> yeah, if he were the team leader, it would be on like a Hulk 
Gary Johnson ticket. Well, was there anything else you wanted to talk about before we get into the minutia? I think that answered all of the the deep questions. I'm still pretty uncomfortable with Fool Killer's treatment of Mr. Trorio because I felt like the character development went out of the way to show him as a a bad person and a racist person. And then this idea of, well, but he hates himself and he's got tiny feet, so... So he's not so bad. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. I, once they brought up the fact that he was a racist, I wanted to see him get disintegrated, and we don't see him get disintegrated, which felt unsatisfying. Yeah, and then that also caused me to take a second and think to myself, I'm like, wow, so this is, <laughs> you know, why, why is that unsatisfying that I don't get to see a human get disintegrated? Like, that seems also harsh. Yeah, I'm okay with it. <laughs> Rick, would you mind singing us into the minutia? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Cory eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, Cory, what do you feel like starting with? Why don't we change it up and start with some sound effects? Okay, what was your favorite sound effect in this issue? There was a few. I think probably my favorite because it was the most evocative of what was happening is on page 22 when Hulk picks up that much despised commuter train and twists the metal in his hands and it makes the noise brank. Yeah, the brank was pretty fun. I liked from the same encounter with the train, the noise smack. Yeah, that was that of him smacking a train around. Uh, It just it sounds so dismissive. I also noticed that when Fool Killer was punching the racist, it made the noise chuck, which was a little bit confusing to me. Hmm. Yeah, it's a weird punch noise. And then, of course, we can't overlook the sound of that um, food plant sculpture splashing its way to destruction. Yeah, it is confusing that the food plant art was that wet. Disturbing, even. Yes, Corey, what was your favorite panel? Probably my favorite is on page 27, and it's the close-up of uh, Hellcat's face as she's got her arms crossed and is looking at Fool Killer in a pretty serious manner, and uh, Val's in the in the background also considering him, and the way she's kind of got her eyebrows arched was just really expressively drawn, so I thought that was pretty great. I like that one as well. I was honestly kind of curious in that exchange do you think her and valkyrie instantly caught on to dollar bill's plan that they should take care of fool killer or did they legitimately want him to join the team for a second i thought it was the latter which also made me concerned because he doesn't present himself i feel very well no and it seemed weird to me that they're like well Kyle's gone, and this guy's a dude, so let's sign him up. (laughs) According to our bylaws, I guess that makes him the new team leader. I mean, the fact that they made specific note of the fact that he was named Fool Killer and that that was all they knew about him, and that there was some hesitation in the way that Hellcat was talking to him, it seemed like maybe there was some subterfuge going on, but it was never really clear. 
I also thought it was perhaps just Patsy stalling because she didn't know what to do. And she's like, so Val, we're thinking the same thing, right? And Val's like, mm, yeah, maybe. And she's like, okay, then you tell him. <laughs> and she goes and sits down. Yeah, yeah. You tell him the thing that we were both thinking. <laughs> I'll just be over here. Mm-hmm. Continuing to think the thing that we are both thinking. I was like, that is actually a pretty good move. Yeah. Yeah, I think that is a pretty good panel. I think my favorite is one that we talked about briefly before, but it's on page 10, and it is the super serious face of Kyle looking an awful lot like James Coburn when he is announcing that he is quitting the team. It is a kind of rare full-page splash of a serious conversation. And I think it's pretty effective, actually. Like, it is the biggest moment probably in the book, Kyle announcing that he's quitting. But having that full-page splash of just him looking serious while his lawyer stands in the background, I thought was actually pretty effective. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he uh, definitely looks a lot more pensive than I'm used to seeing him. Mm -hmm. I did have one backup, too on page 26 and it's the one where hulk is running away from the crowd that's cheering for him after he destroys the commuter train and it's a funny juxtaposition to me where everybody in the background like their arms are raised over their head they're saying clap clap hooray they're super joyous and he's (laughs) just doing everything in his power to get out of there as fast as possible he is doing a weird walk there it's a very athletic pose. It almost looks like he's striking like a, a modeling pose for like a, one of those bodybuilding shows. Yeah, or like he's about to throw a discus or like he's doing a silly walk from like the Ministry of Silly Walks. Or just like really exaggeratedly swinging his arms like when a kid's like, OK, fine, <laughs> goes off to do something. Yeah, no, that is a fun panel, too. You also did notice Earlier, I don't think we were recording that part because Finley was barking, but there is a panel on, I think, page 14, where we really see that the Hulk has pretty much no butt, which is a surprise. I had always thought that, you know, the Hulk had a couple of slabs of moist ham back there, but it seems like oh. he really just does has like a Hank Hill situation going on. It's very puzzling because the rest of him is so muscular and I think somebody once told me that the butt is a really big muscle. So uh, You're thinking of the brain. The brain is the biggest muscle. Uh, nope. Yep, yep. The, uh, the butt is the largest erogenous zone. Oh, okay. So the butt's the largest erogenous zone. The brain's the biggest right. muscle. The brain is the strongest muscle. Okay. Um, the strongest muscle. Yes, and the skin is technically the largest bone in the body. Oh, man. My anatomy is all screwed up. Well, I'm here to set you straight. (laughs) Thanks, buddy. No problem. All right, Corey, time for Behold or Be Gone. Owning a disintegration gun. You want one of these? Other than the fact that if I don't secure it, it could be misused, I don't see a downside. 
Yeah, I mean, I worry that you might be tempted to get into super villainy. Uh, that seems to be the traditional route for a more effective gun. Seems to be something that people view as a superpower, which has never really made a ton of sense to me. Like, oh, now that I've got this device that if I point it at someone and pull a trigger, they'll die, I'm in control. It's like, yeah, that's just a gun. Like, doesn't seem like it would be more effective for crime than any other type of gun. But, yeah, I would like to play with this thing, too. I would use it for, like, getting rid of garbage and food dehydration. What would you use it for? I don't know. I just would be curious to try it out on different stuff. Like, what happens if there's a giant mud puddle <laughs> and you shoot the puddle? Does just the water go away? Does it make a hole in the ground? Who knows? Yeah, that would be fun to experiment with. Dangerous to experiment with. I think I would probably do a lot of damage around the house and likely lose a limb accidentally. Uh, so that's not ideal. But on the plus side, I feel like if you aimed it at some strawberries and then you made like a strawberry powder, I bet you could use that in cooking and that would be really good. Wait, is this a dehydration wet ray or a disintegration ray? It's a disintegration ray, but you see that it leaves in its wake a pile of dust. So what's in that dust? You got to assume it's just like the concentrated whatever it was that you disintegrated. Oh, that could be very useful. Yeah. Yeah, no, you could you could base a whole industry around that. Yeah, but I mean, also on the other hand, you're more likely to have any weapon in your home used against you than you are to use it on anyone. So I guess that does mean there's a pretty good chance that strawberries would shoot you with it. So that's pretty terrifying. It's what we call the Yakov Shmirnov principle. How's that? Because in Soviet Russia, strawberries shoot you. Oh, God. Yep. So I don't know, man. Honestly, I'm kind of torn because I feel like I really would cause a lot of damage if I had access to this. But on the other hand, one of my cousins is a scientist and we got to play with liquid nitrogen one time and like dipping tennis balls or heads of cabbage in liquid nitrogen and then hitting them with a hammer and shattering them. It was so much fun, but it did also make me think I should not have access to this. <laughs> I would hurt myself. I'm not a scientist. I have always wanted to do that. So, gosh, it pains me. I am actually going to come down on the side of Be Gone on this. Wow, that is startlingly responsible of you. <laughs> I know, I have my moments. Do you remember how much fun we had when we got those pellet guns and, tar and did target shooting? Yeah, that was pretty fun. Oh. We shot a lot of my old action figures. you remember when one of them bounced off the fence and came back and hit me? It hit in the crotch, right? It hit me right in the crotch, yeah. It didn't hurt yeah. because it was like a long way for a tiny object to travel through space. But the fact that it hit me there was so startling, I fell over. And, <laughs> and that, I think, scared you. And so it was kind of a funny chain reaction. Yeah. Imagine if you tried to disintegrate a mirror and you shot yourself in the crotch with it. Well, I'm not going to point it at a mirror. What if you really need to get rid of a mirror? Then I would turn the mirror around. And okay. shoot the non-reflective side of it. Or just put it on Craigslist for free. <laughs> Corey, if you had a disintegration gun, you would not be putting anything on Craigslist for free. 
probably I would probably have a Craigslist post that said, "Need something gotten rid of? Uh, not a person." <laughs> you know, you would have to make that distinction pretty clear. Give us a call. So yeah, for me, it's a behold. I want one of these bad boys. Well, one behold and one be gone. In this issue, what was your pie not made out of steel? What words did you like best, much like you would like a pie, were it not made out of steel? I think my favorite was one that also caused me, and I think you two, to have to look up a word. But <laughs> A, because Namor was saying it, and B, uh, it just had a, a good ring to it, and also harkened back to the goofiness of the last issue. It's uh, when Steve comes and asks for his help. And uh, they're talking about the situation with, you know, the thing that Steve cannot pronounce. Namor says, The dark stain that blots out all the light of all the worlds, it is considered by scholars to be an allegory in, I don't know how to say it, eschatological myth at most? I was pronouncing it eschatological, uh, and it made me think that maybe he was just saying uh, it was a poop-themed myth, but with a Spanish accent. Yeah, yeah, that was actually how I read it, and I had that same thought, and I cracked up. That is too funny. It is an eschatological. Hey, it's Italian now. How'd that happen? Well, Clea taught us a couple of episodes ago that when you travel to another realm, you sometimes end up with an Italian accent. Yeah, no, I just, it, it, it was just a very bit of namor speech, which I had missed. And so that was why I chose it. I liked that as well. And he follows that up by using another big word. And I'm honestly wondering if he is just fucking with Steve and trying to use as many words as he thinks Steve won't know, but will feel forced to pretend that he knows. Because he follows that up by saying, the specter of the unnamed spreading across the universe like a cuttlefish effluvium. It's one thing as a fairy tale, quite another as reality. And Steve's like, yeah, just like effluvium. And I'm pretty sure that Steve doesn't know that effluvium means leavings. Yeah. And for the listeners out there who aren't looking it up right away, the dictionary says eschatological if that's how you say it, is relating to death, judgment, and the final destiny of the soul of humankind. Heavy stuff. It's like, yeah, like a theological examination of the fate of the soul and death, which is a very nice turn of phrase and uh, an interesting concept that they would view any references to what I started calling the underpants monster as that kind of a being. I don't know if you've listened to the show, but I call it the underpants monster because uh, the only other time I have heard the word unmentionable used is the way old people talk about underpants. Yeah. They'll call it their unmentionables. And so I started to think of the thing as an underpants monster. But I like the idea that there would be Atlantean myths referring to the underpants monster, and they would just assume that it must be some kind of a myth about hell or something like that. I thought that was kind of a nice touch. I liked those words a lot, too. I think my favorite words, though, came from Valkyrie when they are sitting around talking about what a dipshit Steve is. And she says, I feel positively wicked enjoying such amusement at the expense of the weaker sex. I like that. I don't think she was making a joke there. We see that it is reacted to with laughter, but... 
I really do like them making a reference that getting back to the inception of the character, she was first kind of conceived as, I think, kind of honestly a feminist straw man. But I like the idea of her just being a strong feminist and that being the core of her character. Uh, And so the idea of getting back to that, I think, appeals to me a lot. Yeah, that was a nice switcheroo. In every issue of a Defenders comic book, there is at least one character who has to act in a manner contrary to their previously established character or motivation in a way that furthers the plot. To paraphrase the fat boys from Crush Groove, they just gotta be a sucker. In this issue, who was your sucker? For my sucker in this issue, I had Kyle for really coming back and facing the music in a direct manner as regarding the financial malfeasance or alleged financial malfeasance for his business adventures ventures so yeah kyle yeah i think that's a solid choice uh certainly it would be more in keeping with the way he's behaved in the past if he just ignored it and hoped it went away that being said i went with dollar bill on this for a couple of reasons first of all him concocting a somewhat clever plan to lure fool killer out to the defender's place so that they could arrest him, I think was pretty clever on his part in a way that we don't normally see him operate. I also think that him not naturally gravitating towards a lethal vigilante with a flair for the dramatic and wanting to maybe move in with him, I think was a departure from his normal character. Uh, We've seen that's certainly how he reacted to the last person who fit that description that he met. So I think that was just pretty out of character for him to be like, oh, this guy is a violent vigilante who kills people in a disproportionate way to the crime that they committed. And he's very dramatic. He's a threat and a menace. We got to get rid of this guy. I think that's a dollar bill being a sucker, because that is not normally his way. Mm -hmm. My backup choice was Valkyrie for either having a duplicitous plan of her own to lure Fool Killer into joining the Defenders or try to placate him so that he would be at ease and they could take him out. I don't think of her as being that duplicitous if that was what was happening. Or her genuinely wanting him to join the team That also seemed pretty out of character. So uh, the kind of opposite sides of the coin there with Dollar Bill and Valkyrie. I think Valkyrie being accepting of Fool Killer is out of character for her, just as Dollar Bill not being accepting of him is out of character for him. And her going along with a clever plan rather than just being forthright and she's noble and very intelligent and understands a lot that's happening, but also is fairly guileless, generally. So I think either way, that was pretty out of character for her, but I think Dollar Bill is the bigger sucker here. That hadn't occurred to me, but um, those are those are good points. Who did you have as the best defender, and who did you have as the worst offender in this issue? For best, I went with Namor because I appreciated him being a direct and effective communicator and also not letting Steve push him around by saying, you know, essentially the the fate of our worlds are on your shoulders. He said, 
I get what you're doing, and I appreciate it, and I'm going to think about it and get back to you. So good for you, Namor. I like that he did that. I like that he did it with a fun Italian accent. Maybe he's been traveling to Dimensions too. Uh The Eschatological. Hey. Um, <laughs> My Namor. Which, hey, it's a mean Namor. This is a monster you talk about. He's very eschatological. <laughs> he poops everywhere. Uh, cuttlefish poop. <laughs> Why are you making me fight at a poop monster, Steve? So yeah, I think he did a very good job. Uh (laughs) But I think I'm going to give the nod to Kyle for uh, stepping up and putting the good of the team ahead of his own selfish desires. Weird move, certainly, I think does qualify him for the sucka category, but good for him. Yep. Yep. It was pretty cool of him to be like, okay, you guys use the headquarters and I'm going to go deal with this legal stuff. Yeah, perhaps uncharacteristically cool, but cool nonetheless. Conversely, who did you have as your worst offender? Well, despite that the audience who is now stuck in the middle of nowhere seemed to enjoy it, I thought that the fact that Hulk just grabbed that train and threw it around with the wanton disregard for life and people's commutes was really not cool at all. I get where he's coming from, but... I feel like there's a better direction for that that angry energy. And so because once the people realize that they're going to have to find another way home or expensive taxi ride or just be stuck in the middle of nowhere, um, I gave it to Hulk. Yeah, I also had the Hulk. The train smashing, the deciding you want to be alone, so going from the middle of nowhere to the middle of a train track seemed like a bad move. Yeah, just uh, across the board, I think he did a pretty bad job. It was an entertaining bad job, but a bad job nonetheless. So yeah, I also had Hulk as the worst offender. Mm. Sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion did you feel were most worthy of note in this issue? Oh man, the henchman that gets uh, beat up by the racist guy with the tiny foot, Dunbar has a purple jacket with giant lapels and a canary yellow maybe vest on underneath of it and it is a striking look on uh, page five they show that it is i noted that as well i also want to give some props to kyle's outfit he is wearing a canary yellow turtleneck with a green blazer over it and It is a very nice quitting the team outfit. Well done. My notes say Kyle is an Oregon duck, which (laughs) won't make sense probably to to other people that don't follow the the college football here, but that's uh, their team colors almost exactly. Yes, the yellow and the green. Also, we talked briefly about Patsy and Clea's new haircuts. Uh, I think those are worth noting. They are very era-appropriate. I do miss Clea having the head pretzel, but as far as haircuts go, it's a nice feathered Farrah Fawcett look. It works well for her. I also wanted to, we talked about Fool Killer's outfit last issue. In this one, though, it is made a little bit more clear that what you had thought was maybe a prehensile magic ribbon is in fact a scarf that he has tied around his pirate hat. And I thought that was an interesting look. Like, 
Was he worried that his hat would be jealous that he was wearing a mask, so he made a mask for his hat, too? Or is it just like a Steven Tyler thing where you just want to scarf tight around everything? (laughs) Tough to tell, but a very distinct look for him. And if I'm honest, not a bad one. You really got to commit to a scarf that long on anything, so he gets kudos for that. Yes, you can accuse Fool Killer of a lot, but a lack of commitment to a fashion statement is not something that you can make stick. It's a heck of a look, and I think for the most part, he is pulling it off. Now, Corey, we both know that the Hulk rules in this issue. What are the Hulk's rules? Hulk has actually two rules in this issue. What? Yeah, yeah, it's a dual rule. They may be related, but I can't figure out how, so I'll just I'll give you both of them. The first one is that though it's difficult to be vulnerable, it's required to have meaningful friendships. And um, that's basically, it's on page 14 where he's talking about like, ah, oh, gosh, you know, friends are trouble. Like either they, they leave or they hurt your feelings and he's just not feeling it. And I think that's, that's his way of coming to terms with that, you know, you really got to let somebody in and get to know them if you want to have a deep connection with them. Also, don't mess with other people's horses because that's just not cool and you don't know how it's going to turn out. I think those are both solid rules and lessons that I'm glad that the Hulk has learned. I had the Hulk's rule in this issue being one that might have inspired his decision to run as a libertarian candidate for president, which is you can't rely on people to act in their own self-interest, which he learned when the people who he had just ruined the commute for and stranded in the middle of nowhere, applauded at the fact that he destroyed the train they needed for transportation because they wished they had a better train. Um, Not much more to it than that, but uh, from that, Hulk's takeaway was, man, you can't rely on people to act in their own self-interest. Man, that crowd has got things so mixed up. It's like they're... <laughs> I know. They are saying better never than late. Exactly. Really silly. Uh, And they seem so happy, too. Yeah. I would get it if what they were saying was, I don't have to go to work. This is great. Mm -hmm. We got a sick day. Okay. But they're not. They're saying, oh, I hate this commute. Wish it was longer. Hooray. (laughs) Ah, Dummies. Yeah, what a bunch of stupid idiots. And that's the Hulk's rules. People are stupid idiots. My note for them was, who was the fool now? (laughs) Nice. Zing. I wish somebody disintegrate them. Wow. I guess that's a little harsh. (laughs) Good thing you don't have that ray. (laughs) See? See? Well, Corey, I think all that's left for us to do is to try to write some wongs. So... In the year of our Lord, 1979, and the month of our Lord, August, what Wongs needed writing? So, we know that Wong is a fan of the arts, um, all the arts, including dance and music. He's also a fan of travel, and in the past, whilst visiting Russia, he took in some of the magnificent performances at the, uh, 
the ballet there and uh, struck up a friendship with a dancer, Alexander Gudinov, was a contemporary of, of uh, Mikhail Baryshnikov's. And so they had a, a friendship and, and Wang was pretty excited to hear that um, he was coming with the Bolshoi to town, visiting the States and um, got together with him before the performance and shared with him a record that had just come out, which was Michael Jackson's Off the Wall and played him the song um, Don't Stop Till You Get Enough, and it just blew Alexander's mind. And he couldn't stop thinking about it, and he'd always had this fascination with American culture and, and the music and arts here. And that was kind of all he could think about, is like, I'm just not getting enough out of my life back in the, the USSR. So he defected. Wow. Yeah, and um, that's something that's, I feel like, directly uh, attributable to, uh, to Wong sharing... Um, that, that great uh, early Michael Jackson with him. And so Wong was happy to hear that, and they celebrated later in the month on the 24th by watching the uh, the premiere episode of Facts of Life together, which uh, was a good fit. Alexander was a big fan of Different Strokes, which the show was a spinoff of. And so pretty much happily ever after. On a sadder note, though, Alexander's wife, Ludmila, wasn't feeling it, and she, she went back to Russia and they ended up breaking up in 1982, which is actually also the same year that he wound up leaving the American Ballet Theater, which he had joined as a principal dancer. Some say that there was a, a rift between him and Baryshnikov at the time that precipitated that. But all in all, good move. And that's one of the things that Wong was up to in August of 1979. Very interesting. Well, the other thing that Wong was up to in August of 79 also had some effects on future artistic endeavors, which we'll get to later on. But on August 5th, Phillies pitcher Tug McGraw gave up his fifth Grand Slam home run of the season, which was a record at the time, and he was not feeling good about it. So he hired Wong to be a consultant for him, and Wong had picked up some tips through a exchange program. He had learned about Aqualad and his deep sea training. And so he had a couple of techniques that he wanted to try out with Tug to improve his pitching. And the first one was they did some deep sea diving. They would take batting practice underwater like that. And the the principal idea being that maybe he could develop some sea strengthened limbs. And if he could throw underwater, then he could uh, build up his strength. And once he got above the air, he would be able to throw much faster. So they tried that out. And then to counterbalance that, they went up into space to do some pitching practice up there. While they were in space, Tug McGraw had a 12-year-old son who he wanted to keep in contact with. So they had a radio link going on when they were taking their batting practice. And Tug started throwing, but he was so elated that the ball was going so much faster now that there was no resistance that he was not giving it his all. And so Wong, using a space bat, hit a huge home run off him that actually went right into the sun. Uh, This was on August 30th, and Wong's a pretty powerful hitter and was maybe using some magic to juice up his reaction time. But he ended up hitting a pitch that went right into the sun. Astronauts thought it was a comet, and when it impacted the sun, it had the energy that went off of 100 nuclear weapons detonating. 
So it was a pretty big hit. And Tug was pretty discouraged by that. And Wong gave him some advice. He said, now, Tug, I want you to pitch like you were diving and just throw with all of your might while you're up here. And after that, it really did improve his pitching. And the next year, the Phillies went on to win the World Series, which was one effect from that training that Wong was giving Tug McGraw. The other effect was, I mentioned Tug's 12-year-old son, who was listening via radio to these uh, coaching sessions. Well, young Tim McGraw heard the phrase, pitch like you were diving, and misheard it as live like you were dying, and that's why in 2004 he released a hit song of that title. And that is the Wong doings that Wong was doing in August of 1979. Wow. So much influence. (laughs) Yep. Country music, ballet, That Wong's got his finger in a lot of different art pies. He's all over the place. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Corey, and congratulations on your newfound employment. Thank you. And thank you for joining us, listeners. Uh, I hope that you enjoyed the show, and we will be back next week to find out what's happening with Aqualad and the other OG Teen Titans in a new Teen Titans episode. If you would like to get into touch with us, there's a couple different ways you can do so. We can either be reached via our post office box at Tighten Up the Defense P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon 97294, or we can be reached electronically at ttwasteland at gmail.com. We love to hear from you and have had some really, really nice exchanges. We also had a listener send us in some awesome light switch plate covers that are reproductions of Teen Titans comic book covers. I've got one of them up in my comic book room now, and I I know that Corey put one up in his house, and they look rad. Thank you so much. That was such a thoughtful gift. Yeah, thank you. I see it every time I turn the lights on when I come to the kitchen to make my coffee in the morning, and it's a nice way to wake up. If you would like to find us on other avenues of social media, well, we're all up in the mix in all of them places. So, you know, we're on your Tweetor, Tumblr, uh, Facebook, Linkemup, Grindo, you know, all all the places you'd expect to find us. So just uh, look us up in there and hope you like what you find. And if you can't find us there, well, try looking inside your heart. We'll be there. We've always been there. It's nice here. You can't evict us. Not until, (laughs) what, after July? Yeah, something like that. So hang out. You don't want to evict us anyway. We don't take up much space. You guys are so big-hearted. You know, there's plenty of room for us to stretch out. Put our feet on the sofa. Before we put our feet on the sofa, we we take our shoes off. I mean, we try to be responsible guests in in your heart. So thanks for letting us stay there, rent-free, and again, you can't evict us. Squatter's rights. It's our heart now. That took a turn. Sure. If you would like to support the show monetarily, a great way to do that is by checking us out at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you donate, you get access to a whole bunch of bonus material that is exclusive content for our donors. 
There is the monthly podcast, What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show, which is the Howard the Duck podcast that I co-host with my brilliant wife, Lisa. There are also a bunch of video reviews of classic comic books that I put up there. And there's some extra podcasts that I've recorded with Corey and also some that I've recorded with some other people. There's a ton of stuff up there, and I hope that you enjoy it. And if you donate, you get access to all of that. But more importantly, it's just a really nice way for you to let us know that you like what we're doing and would like us to continue to do it. If you would like to support the show non-monetarily, a great way that you can do that is to leave us a positive review on iTunes or wherever you end up listening to this show. Uh, Just go into whatever device you're using and look up Tighten Up the Defense and then type nice words about us and hit uh, five stars. If you haven't left us a review on iTunes yet and that's how you listen to the show, it'd be nice if you left one up there. Uh, We got a a negative review recently that right now is the first one that pops up and it makes me sad when I see it. So, you know, they're obviously entitled to their opinion, but, uh, you know, maybe you have a different opinion and would like people to see that. Just a thought. That's a good thought. Yeah. Anyway, thanks Thank you. again for listening to the show. You're nice people and... We love you, and I will not be purchasing a disintegration gun. (laughs) Okay. Thanks, everybody. Goodbye. Bye. And they knew it. One, two, three. I didn't hear you clap. I did it for sure. Oh, okay. Maybe they were just so in sync that you you just thought you were hearing you clap. That's amazing. But it was me clapping. Oh, it's the sound of four hands clapping. Oh, shit. Damn. That's like a whole new level of Zen Cohen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's what people listen for. Yeah, it's four four times as good as the traditional one. For the same price. Regulars and co on not <laughs> confusing enough? Listen to these guys. You get four times the value. Yeah, what if four trees fall in the woods? How about that making a sound? Does it? I don't know. Nobody does. One star, because now, apparently, we're a show about drugs. Dude, if we were a show about drugs, we would have a lot more listeners. I bet we would. Yeah. Joe Rogan's got so many listeners. I know! Ah, I know that's not all he talks about. Yeah, I assume his show is mostly anecdotes about being on news radio, right? Like, what's Dave Foley really like?